I'm Jen. And I'm Jane. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge Mana Whenua of Te Awakairangi Kitai, where I'm recording today. Hello! Hello! How has your week been? It has been incredibly busy and full on, yeah. so I'm really glad that I get to sit here with you for like an hour and just decompress. How's your week been? Similarly Same. busy mm-hmm. <laughs> and full on. I feel like I haven't stopped for about three weeks, actually. We're in the getting all of the documentation together for my son's IEP, which is an individual education plan. And that always takes up so much more brain space than I think it should. But every six months it comes around and I'm like, oh, this, right. I have to think about it and work closely with his teachers. And it's great, but also it's like a lot of thinking and working and researching and contacting all of his various specialists. So, ah. Oh, wow. That sounds intense. Mm. My husband's been away all week. So he was away three nights out of five and the same city but twice so we had a, a lot of cheesy toast <laughs> yeah it sounds like a lot and cheesy toast is a great thing to do for dinner so good job you oh yeah the kids loved it i was like we're having grilled cheese sandwiches and they're like what's this oh, yes the, the correct response to grilled cheese this is manna from heaven mm, it is isn't it can't go wrong can't go wrong let's spark joy for you this week Oh, I had my friends from Sydney visiting last week through to this week, and we went away for a lovely little trip up up the North Island, and it was just lovely. Went to Lake Topor and just spent a lot of time swimming in the hot pools, lying around in the sun because it was gloriously sunny, and just reading books, and it was just really nice. It was Aww. just great. Loved it. That sounds perfect. I'm glad I got a chance to catch up. Her, both of you guys had the best vacation photos on Instagram. I was <laughs> well jealous. Yeah, because I haven't seen her since in five years. Like this was the five, first time in five years. So yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, that is a long hmm. time. Was was your birthday party the last time? Yep. Yep. Oh my gosh, that's so long. Yeah, she was supposed to come in twenty twenty, but then of course everything happened. All the things. Gestures and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So this was her using her flight credit, which is good. But, yeah. Awesome. It was a lovely time. How about you? What sparked joy for you? did a lot this week i'm trying to think like the thing that sparked the most joy my local council had food truck fridays going on at the moment and i was really on the fence about going but i thought like it'll be nice because right now it's world pride in sydney so we're having lots of really beautiful Mm -hmm. celebrations and it's mardi gras it was mardi gras this weekend i didn't go to that because crowds and people are not my thing generally but they did food truck friday and i'm like okay that's little it's just at our shopping center i could do that and so we went to food truck friday and there was face painting for the kids and they could make necklaces and there were really beautiful inclusive rainbow flags everywhere and it was just really gorgeous and really lovely and the big stairs up to our train station they've made a rainbow so it was also really beautiful to see visually and as we walked up there was a cover band doing Jolene and we had burgers and chips (laughs) and it was just a really lovely evening it was um just you know me and my my husband and the kids and it's just nice to be in the community doing a community thing and I keep thinking like oh I should do this I should do this but because it's often in like the evenings or the weekends I don't but I'm really glad that we did this time because it was really nice to be out there and part of it oh cute I love that good for you it was really nice I have to say like I love where I live and I love that my local council puts on so much stuff for people and I really want to take advantage of that more especially now that the weather is kind of getting to that not too hot point where you can go Mm -hmm. outside and enjoy things so I'm gonna keep my eye out for more stuff 
And what food did you get? What food truck did you traverse? Well, it was sad. I actually did not get food truck food. We ate at the shopping center, but, but it was delicious. <laughs> we had Betty's Burgers, which is amazing. And the, like, oh, that's what yum. the kids wanted. They were like, yes, we want Betty's, please. We tried. We were like, don't you guys want this or that? And they were like, no, Betty's, Betty's, Betty's. Like, okay, Betty's it is. <laughs> oh, the kids got snow cones. I don't know if that counts, but it was their first snow cone. Adorable. Okay. Well, this week we're reading chapters 34 to 40 through the theme of heartbreak. Did you have a story for us about heartbreak? I do. I have a story about my very first heartbreak. Oh, baby Jen. Literally baby Jen. Okay, so this takes place in America in 1988, roughly. I was a year old. I was only four. So the first heartbreak I really remember is when my friend Kimmy moved away. Kimmy was a little girl who lived on Midway Street, which was like half a block away from my house. Um, Now, I don't have any pictures of her, and I don't really remember what she looks like, but I feel like she had brown hair, and maybe it was curly, and that she had blue eyes. I do remember, though, that she was my best friend, and she was three, and I was four. And because this was the late 1980s, I would just walk up the street to her house to play, and my mom would just send the dog to find me and bark until I came home, and that was what we did before the age (laughs) of, I don't know, injecting your children with tracking devices or whatever. Um, But I loved playing at Kimmy's house because she had a playhouse with a miniature kitchen, real planter boxes outside of real windows, all of these amazing dolls, bunk beds in the playhouse. Like, this was the next level tiny playhouse. And she had an amazing bike as well with these beautiful streamers. Like, Kimmy was living the dream, man. And she was really, like, you know, she was a kid and I was a kid, so I don't really remember, like, what her personality was. But I remember how much fun I had at her house. When she moved away, it happened really fast. Like, she was there, and then she wasn't. They moved away, and suddenly the house that was Kimmy's was, like, it belonged to this frowning older couple who threw away all of the dolls in the playhouse and turned it into a gardening shed. And then they turned the big backyard into a tidy little square house for their son and his family. And then the little boy that lived there wasn't even allowed to play with us because we went to a different church. So it was, like, disappointment upon disappointment. Mm. Yeah. At this age, I had other friends. My friend Charlie, who's a month and a week older than me, um, and Athena, who was like kind of my first friend of me, really. But they were like kids of my mom's friends. So they weren't really like friends I'd picked for myself. And Kimmy was the first friend I had that I picked for myself. So when she moved away, I was like super miserable about it. It hadn't really occurred to me to that point that you could just move. It was the first time I realized that as children, we're really at the mercy of our parents' lives and choices. Hmm. But small towns being what they were, there was enough adult cheddar around to let me know that she'd moved to the coast. So on our next family road trip to the coast, I begged my parents to drive around the neighborhood so I could look for her. I had this idea that if I could see her bike, I would know where she lived. I could see her again. I could play with her again. And my dad, bless his heart, he dutifully drove up and down the streets where she lived for a while. But I didn't see her bike. I never found Kimmy again. And I think it was the loss of that, like, final desperate hope that really hurt the most. There was not going to be a world in which I would ever recover that person. I was four, and I knew I'd never see her again. Even if I did, I wouldn't know her the same way I knew her when she was my neighbor. It took me really a long time after that to find another best friend. I was in second grade before I met Trisha, and we were brownies together, and we got on so well. And our parents got on, and she had a big family like me. And then she moved away at the end of second grade, and I broke my heart again. But that one's slightly happier because I did find her on Facebook several years later, which was kind of cool. In some ways, the temporal nature of relationships taught me resilience. I can let go a little better because I've had experience doing it before. But it also set me up to believe that everyone will move away eventually. And I'll be the one left driving up and down the streets. 
heartbroken, looking for that magnificent bicycle and the faintest hope that a connection doesn't need to be completely severed. I didn't have a way of working through that as a child, so in order to preemptively manage that heartbreak, I felt like I had to be the one with the foot out the door. I had to be the one with the magnificent bicycle, the beloved one, the missed one. But that's no way to live. I think it's hard to be heartbroken. And it looks like so many different things. A friend moving away, a job ending, a pet dying. It's really hard to narrow down what actually will break your heart, what heartbreak is. But I guess it's something you know when you see it or feel it. All I know is that it's awful, but it tells us something really important. That there was a connection, that that connection was real, that that connection was felt. And I think that that makes it worth the hurt. Oh, that's such a great message because we can't avoid that kind of hurt. There's no way of avoiding it. No. And if you're cutting yourself off from the world, you're just preemptively hurting yourself anyway. It's, it's just hurt in a different format, but it still hurts. You know, it's still heartbreak. And it's good. It's a good reminder that heartbreak takes different forms as well as we go into yeah. these chapters. Absolutely. I think we the, the word heartbreak, you sort of think like a romantic breakup. I think it can happen with anything. I think like missing out on a job opportunity can be heartbreaking. Losing mm. a pet certainly is heartbreaking. I mean, it's not just limited to romance, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely agree. Okay, well, on that note, cheery note, shall I do our <laughs> chapter summaries? <laughs> yes, please. So, on the mountain, Simon, Baz, and Penny encounter a dragon who wants to beat the heck out of Baz, snub Penny, and adopt Simon. Ship's timely intervention is the only thing that gets them out of this jam, so they agree to let him be their guide. They get away from the dragon, mostly unscathed, heading towards the Hoover Dam, where Ship has a friend who can help them out. Then they decide to head for Vegas, where all the vampires live. Simon is so awestruck by the Southwits that he decides to fly. He just loves it, doesn't he? <laughs> he really does. I love how much Simon loves the Southwest. I love how much he loves America and how hard it is on everyone else. Like he's he's doing the best of all of them and it's still so hard for him, but he's able to like actually appreciate it. I wonder because his life was always hard, so he doesn't really notice yeah. how hard it is, you know? Like to him this is just normal and now everyone else is suffering. Yeah. As a slightly sideways metaphor, I have my light fixture in my laundry room is broken because the bulb was really hard to find. So I've just strung up a couple of lamps that have bulbs in them. And so rather than using the light switch that's actually attached to the wall, I have to like click them on myself. Mm -hmm. And like this is normal to me now, but it's actually so much harder than just getting it fixed. But I feel like that's mm. Simon's entire life is he's like, well, this light bulb won't fit. I can't get someone in to fix it. That would be ridiculous. I've got a solution that works. And like, that's just how he goes through life, doing a lot of things the hard way, because he doesn't really understand that there's another way. It's just become mm. easier to do what's habitual. Yeah, that's a, a good way to look at it. And I think that's hot. Like a lot of this section, I was just like, this is heartbreaking to me. I don't know if it's really mm. in the text, but it's breaking my heart. But I was thinking about how our other theme obviously is expectation and how often yeah. expectation leads to heartbreak. So I think yeah. in this section, we see Penny's expectation of herself. Like she has this expectation that she's the problem solver, that she's going to figure everything mm -hmm. out. And that is heartbreaking to her to realize that she can't. Like there's a, that line on page 178, she's going through the whole thing where she's like, I trusted myself to digest the current scenario and plot my best path forward. Then she goes on, has a little spiral, then says, I haven't had a plan since we got off the plane. And then she spirals a bit more and she says, I can't remember the last time I made a good decision. Like that Aww. to me is like she's got expectation of herself. And then there's the heartbreak because she yeah. can't get there. She's like letting herself down. She's letting the team down. She's letting everyone down. <laughs> 
And maybe um, and it's also, actually okay because it gives Simon yeah. space to have a plan. Like, I thought that was really lovely. He subverted those expectations by coming up with a fairly reasonable course of action. Yeah, he was really onto it. And he just, he has good instincts and he's good in a crisis, but he lacks the the trust in himself, the belief in himself. No one's given mm. him that, right? So even at the end of that, when he has the little plan, he has to say, I mean, you think, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that little subversion of expectations. And I think also another cause of like heartbreak is the expectations Simon and Baz have of each other, of themselves in a relationship and how they can't meet those expectations. So that's how they end up like hurting themselves basically all the time. I thought there was a fair bit of them preempting their own heartbreak by, you know, Baz was sort of saying as soon as, was it Baz saying as soon as we talk about it, it's over, right? Like, yeah, as as soon soon as we find the words. Yeah. And I'm just like, that does not actually track for me. It would actually help, you idiots, if you just talked it out. I mean, honestly. Yeah, they just don't know how to reach each other, right? Simon doesn't know how to reach out to Baz, and that's heartbreaking. But Baz also doesn't know how to reach out to Simon, and that's Mm. heartbreaking. And they do suffer in that moment. You know, like, the scene where Simon realizes that Baz is actually really hurt, and he's bleeding, right? And he says on page 198, I want to comfort him, but I don't know how. Like, it's such a quiet moment, that between them. But it is heartbreaking because they're like so close, but they're not close at all, you know. Yeah, there's love, but they can't get they can't get through yeah. to actually showing it and living it. And then Baz having that throwaway line about Simon not having a middle name, right? And he says on page two hundred three, it uh, you know I you don't have a middle name, I say, which seemed to hurt his feelings, which I immediately regret. And then there's that whole thing they're holding hands and they can't let go, and that's when yeah. he says, you know, if ever either of us ever found the words, if if we knew how to talk to each other, it'd be over, wouldn't it? Yeah, and even and Penny, like Penny, notices it when she says, "You know, Bear seems timid. Like he isn't sure he's permitted this much tenderness. It's hard to watch." Mm. Ugh. Because he's so confident. He's so confident, and seeing someone who's so confident like that be vulnerable is—it's like embarrassing to her. She talks about how you know she wants to look away, and it's sort of in the same tone as when she talks about him eating. Like you know, I'd love to study him. I'd love to see his fangs, but like I try to be respectful because he doesn't like it. It's a similar sort of vibe with like, oh, this embarrasses him, so I can't look, I can't observe it. It's like Penny is aware of and respecting Baz's boundaries in a way which I find really great. Like, I'm super proud of her for that. But also, I mean, it would be nice if they could all talk, really. Yeah. Um, it has. It's heartbreaking for me that Baz has that flashback to the coffin slash numpty situation. Yes. Like, you know, when he comes to, Margaret has, like, made him unconscious and he comes to and he has that moment where he says, I can't move, I can't breathe. And he's, like, panicking because, yeah. you know, he has this flashback to this yes. horrible thing that happened to him. And he just says, you know, I'm under every sort of weather. Like, he's having such a hard time. And even Simon knows, like, page 194, I felt better. I, I feel better, to be honest, he says, which makes me think he must be nearly dead. Like, yeah, correct. <laughs> like, for him to yes. acknowledge that means yeah. it's really bad. <laughs> The part of that section when they're on the mountain in the beginning that I saw that was like directly referencing heartbreak, I think, was when Baz was talking about how he didn't know who this woman was. And on page 186, he goes through, what is she, a fairy, an elf? Does America still have those? Are these the undying lands? My mother would know. She could name every sort of magical being and creature, even the lost and the dead. Then later he talks about, you know, I'm not an abomination. I'm a mage. I was just bitten by a vampire as a baby. And, you know, the Maggie, the, the dragon, we find out she's a dragon. She argues with him like, no, no, you would have been cast out. You would have been fed to the dragons. And he said, well, there was no one strong enough to cast me out. Mm. And that was just such a double whammy, right? Because his mother 
would have cast him out. He believes that, but I don't know that that's true, but that is heartbreaking that his mother is dead. You know, he thinks this about her and she's dead. So he has this like double loss of, you know, trying to fight back against being labeled an abomination, but also kind of mm. feeling like he is and having to defend his position, having to defend his existence to somebody who thinks he shouldn't exist, which is really rough. Yeah, I saw real heartbreak and that like Baz not actually having a clear sense of who he is or how he who, who, how he behaves. Like he doesn't really understand what being a vampire means, right? But there's also that mm. expectation of what people have of what being a vampire is and this expectation that even Maggie has that, oh, they would have cast you out, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And Baz doesn't have the... <laughs> the theory, I guess. And neither does Simon. Like, Simon doesn't know what he is. And even he says to her, you know, on page 191, I'm not an orphan, he objects. I mean, I am, but I didn't hatch from anything. It's like this idea where he's like, that's not what I am. Okay, Mm. but I am that, but not like that. You know, like, there's a real, there's heartbreak in not knowing your lineage and knowing your past in a way. It's reminding me of when you spoke about not knowing your iwi, right? Yeah, your papa. Yeah, and how that leads to a lot of generational trauma. Because you're kind of unmoored in life without that thing tying you to your community. Yeah. There's there's more of that heartbreak. Like, there's this whole division in the world of magic between speakers or mages and the rest of the magical creatures that, you know, Penelope actually is very explicit about it. She's like, we don't fraternize with other magical creatures, even the non-evil ones. You know, we went to school with a few pixies and brownies and there was a centaur the year ahead of us, but they were all at least part magician. That's on page 210. Like, she's trying to explain to Shep that his fascination with these non-mages is somehow wrong, but also his fascination with mages is wrong because <laughs> mm. he's a normal and he shouldn't know any of it. But it, it, I thought that was really telling in that there's this division between people who are magic and who speak magic. They're all part of, a, a like, a larger community, but there's one small subset that holds themselves apart from it so there's no connection there which is a bit hard yeah and none of the other magical creatures have any time for the mages i think that's what really comes out to this here like Mm. maggie thinks they're horrible the water spirit is like "Mm, shit don't fraternize with them keep yourself clean kind of thing they're just like not held in very good regard at all um also you know when i just yeah i just love that line when maggie is like this one is not a dragon that one is not a vampire am i blind Am I foolish? And Baz is like, no, it's not you. It's us. We're very confusing. <laughs> and then she says, believe you are malformed, outcast, tourist trash. And he goes, she's not wrong there. Like, they've got such an interesting self-perception of themselves. Yeah. yeah. I love that Baz is like, we're fantastic, but also we're terrible. Like, he's there's no in-between for him. He's like... We are both. I think it's heartbreaking for Maggie that she left her home and now she's the only one awake, the only one of her kind, and she's sort of waiting for the other dragons to wake up. Yeah. Like, she must feel that, but that must be heartbreaking for her to have, like, one, left your your past, your home, but also to be alone. Like, that's sort of heartbreaking to be the only one. It is. Mm. I love that Shep and her are friends, and I love that he's got something for everyone he visits. Like, he just has... This he's got a Mary Poppins pickup truck. Like there are so many things in it that he's got rings for Maggie. He has a book for Blue. I love Blue so much. I love the idea of water being a cohesive entity, but like this being a particular river spirit who also is part of all of the water. Like love that. Love it so much. But I love that Shep has he has genuine care for these people. So even in their heartbreak, he's building community with them to speak to them to hear their stories to listen to love them in the way that they need to be loved like that takes a lot of really wonderful work 
I love when Blue was trying to convince Shep to blow up the dam. Because immediately I thought, if only Ronan was here, he would help you out with that right away. <laughs> You'd be like, sure, let me just go to sleep. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> I think in terms of expectations, we yet again see that expectation of how spells work and how magic works. And it's yet again challenged. It's like they just don't mm. learn. Right? Penny in particular does not learn. I love that Baz is like, I can't believe Shep is here and he knows who we are because he shouldn't even be able to recognize his own reflection. So that is a subversion, right? (laughs) That when Penny multiplies the money, you know, Shep is like, you can make money? And she's like, looks like it. And Baz is just horrified because you can't keep casting American phrases. They're unstable. So that's an expectation subversion. Um, And and this open sesame thing. Yeah. The open (laughs) sesame thing is so great when... Shep is like, it's probably a spell because everyone knows it. Have you ever thought about that? And she's just like, oh my god. (laughs) I love how she's not giving an inch, even though he's proven himself to be a reasonably nice person. And he even calls on it. He's like, most people like talking to me. You are the exception to the rule. Like, he's the exception in so many ways for Penny, but, you know, she's the exception for him, which is really funny. I thought that was a great expectation flip. Yeah. I also think it's just, of course, they don't trust you because these kids just expect to be betrayed. And, like, after the mage, who can mm-hmm. blame them, you know? Absolutely. I thought there was something, I wrote it down, but I think it's the part that the dog ate. You know, there was a bit where <laughs> it, it was the, the mage's worst crime wasn't that he was kind of starting all these wars. It was that he made a deal with vampires. And that's mm. why he has he doesn't even have a marker on his grave. And I was like, whoa, yeah. that, like, has not come up yet. Um, but it's said as just, like, a casual fact that, like, he... He doesn't even have a monument or a marker. It's not that he's been stricken from the books, but, like, almost he he's has. Not, yeah, he's not being honored at all, right? Yeah, so the expectation that, like, working with vampires is so taboo, that explains a lot about why Baz is so determined to stay in the coffin, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I also love that Penny just seems to think she can talk everyone into submission. Like, she's just, like, going at it, and Baz is like, I'm the only one with any tact. <laughs> Penny is so arrogant. She just, like, cracks on. <laughs> And then she, like, I love that Margaret is like, I don't have to tell you anything. Like, needn't must. I love that. And also just Mm. that Penny just wishes that Shep would stop talking. And I'm like, Penny, that's you. He's you. Just on the other side. (laughs) My favorite bit was, unhand me. He does. She falls over. She falls over. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's classic Penny right there. Oh, so good. It is good. I love that Simon has decided to fly through the Southwest. This is one of my favorite parts. This and the next bit where they're like together in the back of the truck. I just love that he's getting to spread his wings, literally, that he gets to fly, that he gets to be out in all of the air and sunshine. I feel like he must be so cloistered in London. I just get the feeling that his life is so interior because he has to stay inside, because he can't be who he is. And there's such freedom here. He doesn't have the expectation of having to fit in. Like, he's only around a few other people. And there's no one else around to see him so he can be who Mm. he is, which I love. And I think both Penny and Baz recognize that, right? Because they both have that moment where they're like, we need to find somewhere for him to fly in London, Mm. right? Like, Penny's thinking of parks. And then Baz is like, I still have the family estate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. mm. But it's like Simon doesn't really want to think about London. Like, he doesn't really want to engage with that. He just wants to be in the moment. You know, there's that line, this is tangential, but there's that bit where, oh, where is it? Let me just find it. Oh, yeah. Baz is thinking about it and he says on page 212, aside from the times we've almost died, and honestly, he seemed to enjoy those too, about how Simon is just so much happier here, right? Yeah. And I think that's because he feels useful. He has a mission. He has a focus. He's got something to do. He's not just like schlepping around yeah. the home, you know? Mm, poor Simon. Um, I think 
there was an interesting expectation with Baz and vampirism and being a mage on page 201 when they're trying to suss out like what's going on with him and Maggie's like no you're you're the you're the next blood you are and he's like no no I'm not um and and he says you know you, you say these vampires were trying to learn to speak with magic you can't you're either born a magician or you're not and then the next line is Simon clears his throat because he was born with magic but he is not magical anymore but he also and thinks that, he wasn't born with magic right he thinks it just appeared one day yeah and i have a theory about that i also think it's interesting that the water spirit says i know you you were yeah. the drain and he's like yeah sorry and she's like don't worry about it you put it back right and more i'm yes. like oh simon you could have held on to some yeah 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 how much of him was a conduit and how much of what he gave up was his to have you know it just means i think that there was always magic in him that was his it wasn't all taken you know like yes he is a capacity he's like a battery but well, some maybe of that was, was like, his yeah maybe he wasn't a strong mage but he still was yeah yeah mm, little baba um <laughs> i think it's kind of funny that ship just expects them to have all the answers to these questions and he thinks they're being very evasive which they are but there's also some things that they just don't know <laughs> like especially mm-hmm. baz and simon they're like legit can't give you any answers my guy we don't know <laughs> don't know what i am i got wings i got a tail but i gave them to myself like what does that make me now did you think that that was an interesting and revealing bit of character when she was quizzing him? Like, why did you give yourself wings? Why did you give yourself a tail? And he said, because I wanted to be free. Mm. Free from everything, like, right? Fr- yeah. Free from the battle, free from being a little soldier boy, free from the mage's grip, free from the humdrum. Yeah. I think flying is his version of, like, when you run so hard you're exhausted and you can't think. And then she says, am free. I love that. She's like, yeah, dragons, we're the best. Team dragon all the way. (laughs) I love how she thinks he's a baby. She's like, you're not a dragon. Not yet. You're a kitten. But someday you'll be very ferocious. Yes, you will. You'll be very scary. (laughs) That's how I talk to my cats. (laughs) Like, oh, you're a murder baby, aren't you? Yes, you are. You are three kilograms and you're going to get me. (laughs) Um, that was it, what I had for heartbreak and expectation. Did you have anything else? I just, no, I'm mostly tangential, I think, because I just had so many darn feelings this time. Yeah, exactly. Yep. (laughs) I feel worse and worse about the fact that Baz is alienated from who he is each time that it's brought up. Like, he doesn't know what his body is capable of doing. He talks about that when he's, like, scrubbing the buckshot out of his chest. He doesn't know what it means to like he doesn't eat in front of people which i think there's some real intimacy with breaking bread with people so not being able to eat with the people in your circle your family that's really that's heartbreaking to me yeah and then you know when ship asks him questions about you know why people don't don't eat humans or whatever and he's like i don't know probably because it's really delicious you know probably tastes really good he's just yeah. There's so much he doesn't know and he doesn't allow himself to know because he doesn't want to engage with that part of himself because he finds it so abhorrent that he can't even go there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was really intrigued by the line on page 180 that Penny said, it takes so much magic to stay alive in America. I love this mm-hmm. line because they're all exhausted, right? Like her and Baz, they've spent all their magic. They're just like always knackered. And I find that so interesting because the British mages are so snobby about American mages and how they live, US mages, 
and how they do things and their society and yet she says it takes so much magic to stay alive in America so shouldn't you have more respect for them and the way they do things since they don't seem to be exhausted all the time yeah yeah I did I really enjoyed that chef was like no they don't talk to each other they're like they can't really do anything about the now next because they would have to organize and they are not gonna do that and that just felt extremely true to me (laughs) (laughs) there's a joke that the U.S. is actually 50 small countries in a trench coat Mm. pretending to be one big country and that is very true yeah from an outside perspective I think they should do that I think it would be better for all of us (laughs) if they just split into smaller bits it's wild just from my own experience, watching them all traverse this and having like the friendliest Midwest guy show them around is really lovely because you, <laughs> you ultimately do want someone who kind of can show you what to do in different places. And Shep's like, hello, right here, offering. But it, it's, I think it would be hard to navigate if you didn't come into that knowing some of it. Mm, good point. Um, I also just loved Margaret observing on page 188 you know she says to ship you're a good boy and innocent not a knight not a mage not a blood eater so if we break that down obviously blood eater is bad mage is penny which means she sees simon as a knight he is though she's so perceptive love love maggie i love her crankiness i love that she's nervous about meeting these other dragons and that makes her a little cranky too it makes me happy Mm. that she's God, like, I love that every character, even the tiny little character we only see for a couple of pages, has so much depth and reality to them. It's great. Yeah. I also love that she is very dismissive of Baz's wand because it's extinct. It's from an extinct animal. I was like, I feel you on that, Maggie. I'd be mad, too. <laughs> I never get over thylacines. Oh. Shep is just trying to engage Penny and Baz so hard, and Baz is just like, I've never been drawn out in my life. <laughs> I love that. I underlined it twice. <laughs> and Buns, especially, has taken against him. It's just so funny. <laughs> so funny. I love that they're both like squinting inside and Simon's like, hey, it's Shep. <laughs> there are two really great lines. And like, there's, I think this is actually a really insightful section. Like, there's a lot of things that I really just want to mull over, you know, like just chew on. Mm. So on page 204, when Shep says, knowing is better than telling, I really like that. And then on page yeah. 211, when Penny's having a crack at him for just like roaming about and she says, you'd learn more from the world if you knew more about the world. She sounds so much like her mum. And then later on, yeah. she says, you know, magic save us from radicals. I say sounding to my dismay, pretty much exactly like my mother. Like, yeah, you've actually been sounding like your mum a lot. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, honestly. She just doesn't think she does, but she actually totally does. And this is why her mom, like, hand waves all of her crime spree. Because she's just like, eh, that's not big enough for me to worry about. The real issue is... <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I love that she says magic save us from radicals, because I bet she was saying that about the mage, like, all of Penny's childhood. She'd just be like, ugh. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I also like that she absolutely lies about it. Please tell me so I can make sure that this person faces an international tribunal. There's no such thing. <laughs> So funny. She's giving him misinformation. But they, like, they spell Shep. He can't tell anyone or he'll die. Like, that is a huge spell. And he was, yeah, like, he takes but, it on the chin. But does it hold, though? Because we know a lot of magic doesn't actually hold on him because of his situation. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. I felt like it glowed, like their hands all glowed. So I felt like it was enough that maybe because it doesn't mm. interfere with the curse. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't contradict the curse in any way. Whereas the forgetting would. Oh, so Shep is cursed. If you guys haven't read the third book, you should, because we're going to talk about, we're going to spoil things. Sorry, not sorry. You should be used to that by now, though. So. <laughs> yes. Shep is lovely, but he's a little, just a little bit cursed, like tiny mm. bit. 
I do love that he prattles on about his family for like a thousand years. Like this guy is not good with silence, and I feel it. I totally feel it. <laughs> Very American he just behavior. Wants to be friends with him, so he's like, yeah, I'll just tell you everything. Just chat till we're friends. You'll know my life story. Maybe you'll tell me theirs. And he's like, I'm in. They don't like me, but I'm in. <laughs> I was. I thought of you, and I thought of this when I was in Topol because there were busloads of Americans. I don't know why there were so many tour buses in Topol. Maybe because they were. I don't know if you guys know, but there was a massive cyclone. In New Zealand and half the country is basically absolutely wrecked and without power mm. and without any kind of stuff. So I will put a donation link in the show notes if anyone wants to contribute because people are dead and it's horrible. But anyway, I think Topol was fine. So I think a lot of tour buses diverted to Topol yeah. and they were just full of US tourists. And I was just sitting there in a cafe just watching them and just marveling at how different <laughs> Americans are and like how... They were just trying to draw these hospo workers and they were giving them nothing because they're like Kiwis. And I'm like, they probably think they're so rude, but these Kiwis are just confused by what is happening right now. Because that's not how we behave. But it's obviously how Americans behave. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Friend until proven otherwise, I think. And like, this so extends funny. to people that they would not vote to protect. This is why it's so confusing. Like, it, there isn't a lot of the whole evil stares picking on people in public as much as there is like the oh I just wouldn't vote for them or I don't want them teaching like that's the more subtle and insidious thing is that everyone Mm. is friendly they're friendly but there is that like underlying you know you seem nice but yeah Mm. this is a dark yeah it is I mean it's everywhere but yeah it is everywhere yeah it's not exclusive but it was just funny. It was just funny watching them be so cheerful and then people just being like staring at them from behind the counter, like, stop talking to me. <laughs> I have seen your kind. Yeah. Anywho, what other tangential did you have? That's all of mine. I have some more. Let me see if I can find it. Again, I'm having to go back to the dog ate my homework. I cannot believe it. <laughs> she pulled it off the printer and she's actually quite happy with me because she got a bath today and she really loves bath day. And we had a big cuddle before, but she just really wants to eat and destroy paper. So she pulled it off oh, the she... printer because it made the noise. Classic Pope. <laughs> She's the best. Um, I love that Penny makes the diff- a point of noting the differences between the woods that they've wandered around and back home mm. and the woods that they're in now. And I also thought it was great that it gets foggier and foggier and darker and darker. And then there's this voice inside your head that you're like, ah, it's a voice inside your head. I love the whole concept of Maggie the dragon being the mountain. And I really thought that was a beautiful way of looking at it. Like the world is so much more complex and different than you can imagine, whether it's, you know, in our reality or in the reality of this book, like in the world of this book, it's so different and so complex. And it reminded me of this Mary Oliver poem where she was talking about how she puts rocks in a bowl and they drink water and she knows that they drink water because the bowl is empty after a while even though she puts tin foil over the top really tightly and I can't remember the name of the poem but I read it and I was like I love that she's just feeding these rocks every year Mm. and she believes they drink and she's like I don't know if they're drinking or what but something's happening they're doing something so who am I to say what they are or what they aren't and it's such it just reminded me of of the that poem when I was reading about Maggie, the mountain, who is also a dragon. Like, what is under our why? feet that we don't understand? Yeah, why not? That You know, these are things, there are things that are ancient. It reminds me of, like, Hamlet, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Like, yeah, 
Don't rule it out, people. I would love if dragons were real. I would love it. I would be so into it. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? I love the idea of them coming all back. Yeah, like if all that mythology one day just suddenly came back to life. Um, On page 203, you covered this a bit, but I wanted to point out that we know that Simon's middle name is actually Snow. That is actually yeah. his middle name. So he does have a middle name. And also that Baz almost exclusively calls him Snow. Like he does call him Simon more than Simon thinks he calls him Simon, but he still likes using Snow. So I yeah. love that. I love that he's like, you don't have a middle name, but you love his middle name. He calls him Simon when they're talking and there's this beautiful tender moment. And then he's like, you should wash your hands because there's vampire blood on them. And I was like, no, he was giving you comfort. Just accept the comfort. <sighs> These boys. I just want to grab them and shake them. He does do that to Simon as well. Like when they get to the dam, he pulls them closer and he's basically like, are you sunburnt? Are you dehydrated? Are you dying of exposure? <laughs> He's so worried about him, but he can only express it in like fussing or kind of being a little bit deprecating, really, I think. Which is really relatable. Mm, he doesn't know what he's allowed to do, right? Yeah, he just doesn't know what Simon will accept. Yeah, where's that on page 206? You know, he said, we're getting by, aren't we? Mostly, even with people tying us up and shooting at us, we're getting by. He keeps touching me and I keep letting him. And I haven't felt, I don't know, that static I usually feel. Like what's happening between us is building is a building I have to run out of before it collapses on me. And that is just so profound. Like, I, the way that he explains it is is that he's just waiting for a catastrophe every time they're touching. Like, he needs to tell Baz that so Baz knows that, they're, like, he's afraid of this catastrophe. Yeah, and, like, how he says, you know, he can't explain why it's different to kissing than to being kissed. There's, like, this whole idea of, like, the vulnerability of, of letting go, of putting yourself in someone else's hands. Like, he can't do that because of all of his past trauma. He doesn't know what that looks like. He's never done it before. The one person he trusted really was the mage, and look how that turned out. The mage was terrible. Yeah. Death to Davy. We dig him back up and kick him and then put him back in the grave. Because I I would be okay with that. Step on his toes a bunch. Horrible. My tangential. I mean, I would love to just talk about the whole chapter. I especially love that they're getting all of this information about now next or next blood and that everybody's worried about it enough that even Shep knows about it. Yep. So that's pretty great. And I love that he keeps going, aha, when things fall together. I don't know why then, like, you know, when Bear says I was bitten as a baby, whatever, whatever. This seems like a fairly obvious thing that the next blood should have figured out. <laughs> like... Well, yeah, they're trying to reverse engineer it because they're already vampires. They want to be magical as well. No, you got to bite the magicians. <laughs> That's how you do it. Souls about it. Yeah, but yeah, true. But they're so hard to find in America, right? That's the whole thing. Like, the, these are people who like the, the way that I read that as is it's these are people who want these things for themselves now. Yeah. They don't want to wait until the next generation no, to no, make it better. No. And also that doesn't benefit them, right? Because they want to be musicians. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they could marry into marry people who have who have magic and have magical kids and then turn those kids, but they're not willing to do that because then they wouldn't get the benefit. So they're not actually working for the greater good. They're working for the greater themselves. Mm. Which is just not even a metaphor at this point. It's just actually how things go for a lot yeah. of corporations. Horrible. 
And it's, I love that they like tech bros as well, the now next guys and well, like wellness <laughs> yeah. people because it's just classic, classic mm-hmm. behavior, Silicon Valley behavior. This is peak Silicon Valley. Uh, missed Agatha this section quite a bit. I'm very worried for her. I would like her to be better and back and mm. not being trapped in now next. But I do like that we got a little bit more Shep and I like that we got Shep's internal monologue about how stoked he is to be there. <laughs> yeah, Shep is good value. He's so great. It just makes me so happy. But yes, I think that was all I had. Cute. Just all feelings. Um, did you have an in-depth? I do have an in-depth. So mine is from page 207. And it's that lovely section where Simon is the back of the, the van, the van, the truck. They're riding over mm-hmm. to the Hoover Dam and he's just hanging out, marveling at the landscape and having all these like profound epiphanies, as you said, about... Mm-hmm. Baz and his relationship and his feelings and how things now feel a bit bearable in this new landscape and they haven't been before. And the line is, page 207, I feel half-baked and scrub raw. I feel fine. So I think he's, you know, he's talking about the physical feeling because he's been baking in the sun on the back of this truck and he's been like whipped around by the wind. So that is it. But I also think it's emotionally how he feels in this environment. So I think it reminds me of the theme of heartbreak because in a way he's... He's had to leave the familiar surroundings of everything he'd known in order to feel like he can exist, like he can be, that he can be alive in some way. But he doesn't feel like himself. He's trying to find what the new version of himself is. And that is a heartbreaking thing to go through. Like, personally, it just feels like a lot. And it really reminded me of, like, I don't know why, but it made me think of after my breakup, I one day, this was months later, and I was like, had processed it or whatever but I'd gone for this run and it was raining and I just remained remember standing at the point where it was really windy like to the point where you can't really run into the wind because the southerly comes straight down the straight and you just like can't that you can't breathe in the wind like it just takes your breath Mm. away and I was just standing there and the wind was pummeling me and it was raining and I just felt so good like I felt so clean and alive Mm. and like everything was possible after this moment like I'd come through something you know and that reminded me of the Taylor Swift song which is called Clean and in the chorus, she talks about, you know, the rain came pouring down. When I was drowning, that's when I could finally breathe. And by morning, gone was every trace of you. And I think I'm finally clean. And it's just like this universal feeling when you've gone through something terrible that it does strip away these other outer sides of you and leaves you raw. Like leaves that emotion really raw, like a raw nerve. And then you just have to build back better. So going forward, I just want to say, you're like, it's going to suck for a long time sometimes. And it is hard, but you have to get to the bottom of what you're feeling and lean into it to start building back. And it's just like, it's bittersweet, but I don't know what else you can do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I've definitely had feelings like that, like that catharsis moment. Mm. Where you've shaken everything, all of the dust, all of the ashes of everything else have finally been sloughed away and you can... You can start like, again. Really begin to be... Yeah, rebuild. Like, it's like scraping the ground clean before you put something... Yeah, in. and it feels like you can breathe, right, for the first time. And I think that's what yeah. Simon's feeling as well in this moment. It's like suddenly he can pull a lung full of air, whereas in London, he couldn't really do that. He was suffocating in so many ways. And he's such a physical person. He's such a physical being that having this actual space to like fly around and be part of the environment and see the environment from all of its aspects, it's actually hugely important to him. Like he Mm. needs to be a gardener or something. He cannot be inside. He's not a, an intellectual office worker type. Nah, he needs to be a farmer. That's my headcanon. My headcanon is that him and Malcolm pitch 
find some good ground and <laughs> starts farming with Malcolm. Are... I love it. Nice little deer park for Baz. <laughs> that could work. What was your in-depth marginalia? Uh, so mine is on page 217, and it's when Blue has recognized Simon, and the section is, a wall of water rises up in front of him, and the woman's shape seems to walk through it, reaching for Simon's chin. I know you, she says, daubing at him. Simon lands on the pavement, standing very still. You were the drain. He nods. Yeah, sorry. Did I take your magic? Not mine. The world's, yeah. I'm sorry, Simon says again. I didn't know. She smooths back his hair, sopping it. It's okay, she burbles. You put it back, and more. He bows his head and lets her hand fall over him. And I chose this because I keep coming back to this visual of it, of him apologizing for taking something that he feels like was never his, that didn't belong to him. And so this is for him a moment he expects to have to to pay for this, or, you know, he expects a consequence. There's just absolution. There's just forgiveness. And then she, she gives him something else by knowing him, by seeing him, by recognizing him. She says, you gave it all back and more. And there's something there that we, we, you know, we talked about this already, but it just struck me this time that we are never going to know all of the wonder that, that he could have been or was or is. Like, we'll get ideas, but it makes me think of how in our own lives we're never going to know the wonder, the complexity of everybody we meet or even the people we're the closest with. Mm. Because there's always going to be something else. We're never going to know what they put back or what they took or, or what more there is. Mm. So that's how it kind of relates to real life. Um, how it relates to the themes, I thought the expectation that he was, you know, he was like, I'm willing to be responsible for my actions. Like, you can do what you need to do. I'm here. I'm copping to it. That was really lovely and very mature of him. And again, he is the most, like, reasonable and amenable of the bunch. Like, Baz finally comes around, but Simon's always been like, man, this guy's fine. Like, we, we, we could, you know, but he doesn't view himself as a mage. The most heartbreaking part is that he was known. Mm. He was recognized. And to be recognized as the person who took the magic but then put it back, like, that's not something he gets recognized for. He was called the chosen one, but nobody ever talks about what he actually did. Mm. So that's the heartbreaking thing. I, I mean, I really don't have anything more profound to say about it, but just the way that Blue was willing to take that time to put her hand on him and the way he was willing to fall into it, it just spoke to the need he has to connect with the people who understand what it's like to be on the periphery of magic and i'm hoping that you know sometimes when we're feeling our worst we can look to people who maybe also are similarly marginalized or similarly on the periphery and we can we can be recognized that way there's something in that imagery of her pushing his hair back but also like letting her hand fall over him like that purity of water like the purifying of water that's such a ritual thing in so many cultures that you can wash yeah. away and start anointing. again through yeah anointing and also like it's almost like a baptism right it's beautiful imagery too that he's letting this hand fall over him like it's not a hand and it's not water but it's both but it's neither yeah ah rainbow you're killing us man killing us <laughs> always Ugh. Oh, always. too many feelings we don't like it <laughs> <laughs> it's just inconvenient that feelings who did you want to spotlight this week so strangely, I'm just going to spotlight Maggie Margaret the dragon because there is something so glorious about her living and protecting this mountain that is actually her body and these dragons, mm. right? They're all in the mountain. That's who they are, This that you're on her. But there's also something just sad about the fact that she's on her own and she can't wait to meet these dragons that she doesn't know and 
she doesn't know when that's going to happen or how that's going to happen. She's just waiting and she's on her own and she's left her homeland. And it's just, yeah, it's just sad. And I just kind of love that she is just the fierce old slash young woman (laughs) roaming about harassing poachers. Like, yeah, you get it, Maggie. (laughs) I just thought I wanted to spotlight her because she just really stood out to me in this section. She's a great character. I love her too. I'm glad you spotlight her. Who would you like to spotlight? Oh, this week I'm going to spotlight Simon. He's getting some good recognition of how he feels. Like he's starting to put together that he needs certain things. He's always saying who he is and no one's believing him, which is really, I think, unfair. But, you know, when he's recognized as somebody who who did this thing, who took this magic, but then fixed it, that's a really big moment for him. And I just like he's got to have a lot of feelings about that. Plus, he had this huge, lovely think about what was going on between him and Baz in the back of the car and there's so much hope there now like he thinks maybe we can do it maybe it'll work we're getting by right like i'm letting him touch me it's 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 gonna be okay like he's starting to get hope back and i just i really want that for him Mm, me too hold on simon just hold on hang in there buddy well did you have any homework for our listeners this week i do so i have been i read a book last night but i have also been reading an excellent book Okay, so it's called Jane Austen's Names, Riddles, Persons, and Places, and it's by Margaret Doody. And basically, it's like all of the place names, all of the people names, all of the like county locations and their significance as pertaining to like political and royal and history and like even ancient history or even like pre-Roman history in England. Like this is not a book that messes around. It talks about the way that Jane Austen uses names, the significance of them like what each name means, who it might be connected to, and it's amazing and I'm loving it. So if you're a Jane Austen person who like has more than a passing interest, which is kind of what I am, like I enjoy Austen a lot, but I'm not like a huge Austenite. This is, I think it's still pretty interesting. I mean, it's academic. So like sometimes I'm just like, oh, but it's um, the other thing I wanted to recommend is a book I read for book club, which was really good. And it's called August Kitko and the Mecca from Space. And it is like... Pacific Rim, as presented by Baz Luhrmann. It is a campy, fun, queer space opera, and it was so enjoyable, and there's giant mecha who fight, and I don't know, it was just really fun. And it was great, and like, the romance is really cute and satisfying without being like, cloying and sweet, and it was very readable, so highly recommend. Love a bit of Pacific Rim adjacent nonsense. Yeah, I mean, like, someone else at book club was like, it's like Transformers, and I was like, oh, didn't think of that, that's a bit weird, okay. I don't think it's like Transformers because you go into the Mecca. So it's more like Pacific Rim where you're like mind sinking. Mm. But anyway. Drift compatible. Everybody's Yes. Oh, the drift compatible. Still the best metric. Love it. Uh, did you have any homework? I was going to say no. I didn't have any homework. But I did read Piranesi by Susanna Clark while I was in Topol. Oh, did you like it? It was incredible. I loved it. And I loved that it was short and I could read it quickly. Um. Mm. Yeah, no, it was great. It was really interesting. I, I kind of knew immediately what was going on, but it was really interesting to see it unfold. So, yeah, read that if you haven't. It's an interesting book. It's on my list. I think it's up on my shelf somewhere to be read. Yep, there it is. It's the first one in my to be read pile, according to my to be read piles order. So I might have to get it down and have a read. Mm, it's cool. It's like in the same vein as like The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, which is another book I really, really recommend. I just love weird books where you're like, I don't really know what just happened, but I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
like fever dream books where like if you had to take them apart Eric's yeah body, you'd be like well, I don't actually know what happened I will say that Perenice is but something l- definitely did yeah I'd say like Perenice is less of a fever, fever dream book like the style is see definitely a fever dream book but Perenice mm. is probably more like life of pie-ish on the fever dream scale so not like that far over okay but anyway yes okay. try that and let me know what you think Yes, I've been meaning to read it for ages. So that was a Steve Otter recommended one from my class, and I think probably yours as well, right? Yeah, she loves it. Well, next week we'll be reading chapters 41 through 46 through the theme of nature. Ooh. So it'll be interesting to see some more nature, and then we're heading to Vegas. Yep. Love it. It's going to be very interesting to see Baz in this new vampiric environment. See how he goes. I'm excited. Excited to see Baz at absolute rock bottom. <laughs> I know but at least he's got some clothes back now he's got more clothes this feels good <laughs> poor guy oh thank you so much always lovely to chat no i'm so glad we were able to meet up and thank you for pushing back a little bit for me so i could join this new book club and see how it goes or at least turn up and see how it goes it's good all good we're all about agility being flexible agile we're gymnasts in our minds <laughs> okay well i'll see you next week Alright, see you next week. Bye! Thank you for joining us today. Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to hello at marginaliapod.com, check out our Instagram, or maybe dash off a quick review. You can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our music is by Scott Buckley, and the logo artwork is by Laura Cato. You can find detailed show notes for each episode and much more at our website www.marginaliapod.com. Special thanks to all the people in our various communities whose love and care sustains us. Without your support, we would be very sad little critters. We appreciate you. And to you, our wonderful listeners, thanks again for being here. We love spending this time with you. 